Well, good morning, church family, and it's just good for us to be together. We're in a series of messages on identity, identity. It just seems like uh, our world uh, has so many things to say to us, to tell us who we are, but we've been listening to another voice. We've been answering this question, who am I? And what we've said is that there's a better question then who am I to begin a discussion on identity? And the better question, the first question that we need to be asking before we ask the question, who am I, is simply the question, who is best qualified to tell me who I am? Who is best credentialed? Whose voice do I need to hear most? And we have been nourished by God's voice in God's word, hearing what he has to say to us. And it's so important because when we find ourselves listening to other voices, that's when the doubts and uncertainties come in. There's an excellent book I'd recommend by Alistair McGrath called Doubting. Doubting, facing the uncertainties of life. And in this book, Alistair McGrath says this, He says, the best way to turn a Christian into an atheist, the best way to turn a Christian into an atheist is to get that Christian to stop looking to God and stop listening to God and instead to get that Christian to pay attention to their own state of mind about God. The best way to turn a Christian into an atheist is to get that Christian so preoccupied with their uncertainties, their doubts, their inadequacies, their weaknesses, their failures, their past, so that then, having been weakened, they become full of despondency and despair and depression, so that then that becomes anxiety which then becomes anger at God, which then begins to accuse God, which then leads to abandonment of God. Alistair McGrath says it works every time. The best way to turn a Christian into an atheist is to get that Christian to stop paying attention to God and instead pay attention to their own mindset about God. Here's the deal. This has been going on for centuries, so much so that a pastor in Germany centuries ago named Martin Luther, when he would go through seasons of doubt and uncertainty and despondency as a Christian, as a Christian pastor, he kept focused on God in this way. When those waves of doubt and despondency would come upon him as if he was on uh, the shore of a sea and the waves were smashing against his face, there he would stand and he would say aloud, not in his heart, not in his head, but out loud in the midst of despondency and despair that would hit him uh, in the face, wave after wave after wave, he would stand there and he would shout back at the top of his voice, I am baptized. I am baptized. I am baptized. Now, why would he say that? 
Well, I want us to consider some passages of Scripture today that talk to us, that answer that very question. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. You'll find that on page 974 of your church Bibles. And Galatians chapter 3 is the first of a couple of passages of Scripture that I want us to consider as we, as we really unpack this New Testament teaching on baptism. And what we're going to see by looking at Galatians, and then later on we'll be in the book of Romans, we're going to see some images, some pictures that help us understand, that encourage us about our identity in Christ, pictures that are packaged in this uh, New Testament teaching on baptism. We're going to see the picture of sonship. We're going to see the picture of marriage. And then we're going to see the picture of mission. And the picture of sonship comes to us first in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. The Apostle Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Some of your translations say have been clothed in Christ. Verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. These verses are about identity, who we are, our self image our significance, our self-worth. And the Apostle Paul is firmly convinced with his life and with his life's message that, that who he is and his significance and worth and identity are united and bound in Jesus Christ. I am united with Christ. I am in Christ. I am one with Christ. And baptism demonstrates that. Baptism showcases that reality. No, there's no magic in the water, so let's get that settled right away. Baptism demonstrates and showcases the reality of this image, first of sonship in Christ. In Christ. What puts us in Christ is, verse 26, faith. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, through faith in Christ. Now, what do we mean when we talk about faith in Christ? I mean, why faith in Christ as opposed to faith in Augustus Caesar? Or faith in Napoleon Bonaparte? Or faith in George Washington? Well, what's different about faith in Christ? Well, biblical Christianity teaches that Jesus self-claimed that he is not of this world. I'm thinking of something Christ himself said in John chapter 8, verse 23. 
John chapter 8, verse 23. Write that, write that down and you can look at it later. He said to them, Jesus, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying that his origin is not earthbound. His origin is in the heavenly realm. Biblical Christianity teaches a threeness to the oneness of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One being existing in three persons, and each person uh, is God. Three in one, and don't ask me to explain it. This community of love, this triune community of love existing for all eternity, this community of harmony, community of love, community of care, and love, love shares, love grows, love expands. And it's as if our three-in-one God said, this, this love must continue to expand and and that is why this universe was created. That's why you were created. You are here today because God is love. God is love. Sharing, giving, abundant love. And then you know what happened. Our spiritual ancestors rebelled against that love. And our world became a broken, fallen world. And that fallenness has permeated into every nook and cranny of the universe. But God was not content with leaving this world broken. So he sent his son to repair and restore and make all things new. And so Jesus Christ came, God in the flesh. And my goodness, what a remarkable Remarkable uh, uh, experience it had to have been to be in the presence of Christ. I mean, they lived with him. They saw him. He taught like he was from above. He healed like he was from above. His very interactions from above. And then he was a victim of injustice on a Roman cross. This is a fact of history. And then he was peeled off that Roman cross after he died, and his corpse was placed in a tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. That's a fact of history. And witnesses saw where that corpse was placed. That's a fact of history. And then on the third day, the tomb was empty. Fact of history. And then individuals, two at a time, Three at a time, a dozen, 500 at one time. Testify to having experienced the risen God-man, this crucified God. They saw in a body, he was no ghost, he was no dream, he was no vision. They experienced the living Christ who ate, who had table fellowship with his disciples. I mean, these testimonies are a part of the history. And then they witnessed his ascension into the heavenly realm, 
seated at the right hand of the Father, after which the Holy Spirit came. And over the next three decades, Christian communities began to emerge, mushroom across cities in the Roman Empire, testifying of life change in and through Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's talking about when he talks about faith in Jesus Christ. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Sons of God through faith. Now, us 21st century egalitarian Americans would have preferred the Apostle Paul to say, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. And I get that, but let's not expect Paul, who lived in the first century, to communicate like we prefer to communicate in the 21st century, you know? Uh, there, that would be like what you would call chronological snobbery, don't you think? When you actually unpack what Paul is saying here, when he says you are all sons of God through faith, you'll realize how wonderful this is because in the first century, sonship and the prime blessings of sonship came to the firstborn male in a patriarchal family. That's how it was in the first century. But Paul takes that very same word and he expands on the meaning of it when he says that sonship by grace through faith in Christ is not just for the firstborn male of a patriarchal family. Who does he say that it's for? Keep reading. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. What we're talking about is a multinational, multi-ethnic. We're talking about, can you imagine how revolutionary this was in the first century? A culture where there existed castes and, uh, 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 and classes of people here. Slave, free, Hebrew, non-Hebrew, male, female, all because of Christ receive the blessings of sonship in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are connected to the promise of Abraham because Christ is in the lineage of Abraham, you see. And that automatically makes you an heir. Male, female, Hebrew, Greek, slave, free. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's good news, is it not, church? Amen. Well, baptism showcases that. <laughs> See, Baptism showcases that. That's why the Apostle Paul says, for as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ or clothed yourself with Christ, it showcases that it is by grace through faith that we all, no matter where we've come from, we are all in God's wonderful family. So much so that we can call God and keep reading down to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Oh, it's a beautiful term. It's a term that conveys two key concepts relational intimacy 
and undivided loyalty. Relational intimacy and undivided loyalty. First, relational intimacy. You see, because we belong to Christ, just as Christ prayed, our Father, we too can pray, our Father. So you see, and, 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 we, and we can use even the most intimate term in the Hebrew language for Father. We can say, Abba. Abba. Calling God Abba is the most intimate language of the family in the Jewish world. Do you see why through Christ our entire perspective of God changes? And this is unprecedented among all of the religions in the world. This is unique to Christianity. God is my Abba Father. Relational intimacy. And, and let me tell you uh, how this helps me. So I take a passage of scripture like 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that's the love chapter in the New Testament, and verses 4 and following. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, conceited, or proud. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, all right? Here's, here's what I would encourage you to do that'll help you get the relational intimacy. Just take out the word love and insert the word our Father. Our Father. Sounds like this. Our Father is patient. Our Father is kind. Our Father does not envy or boast. Our Father is not arrogant or rude. Our Father is not irritable or resentful. Our Father does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Our Father bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Our Father never fails. Who are you listening to when you get your information about God? <clears throat> Listen to Him. Listen to what He says about Himself. And baptism showcases this. Baptism showcases our Father, Abba, Father, or in the English, Daddy, Daddy. Relational intimacy, undivided loyalty, oh yes, yes, the sonship that leads us to call God Father in relational intimacy is also the sonship that makes us fiercely loyal to our Abba. Uh, and so to be baptized signifies a transferal of our allegiance from one domain to another domain, from one realm to another realm, from an old way of life to a new way of life. From one kingdom to another kingdom. And how serious this decision is taken, even throughout the world. I'm thinking of countries where Christianity is a very, very much a, just a, a micro minority in the culture. And I'm thinking of countries around Pakistan and Nepal, especially where Hinduism is the supermajority culture. And those who are Christians 
are often persecuted for their faith. And so, when a candidate, uh, when a believer, rather, is ready for baptism, oh, they ask them the question, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? They also ask him some other questions, and I have seven of them here that I know are asked. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? And it's not as if that these questions are in some way merit some favor before God. It's just simply when you make this decision and that decision is showcased in the waters of baptism, don't expect the culture to approve. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes uh, other religions have a clearer grasp on the implications of baptism than American Christians do. Sonship through faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism showcases this. But that's just one picture. Let's consider another picture. A picture that the Apostle Paul gives us from his letter to the Romans. A picture of marriage. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says, We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, you can hear that baptism is this reenactment of this dying to this old way of life and this rising to a new way of life, this death and then this rebirth. And then Paul continues his line of reasoning on into Romans chapter 7 when he talks about marriage, marriage between a spouse who has died and then a new spouse. Romans 7 verses 2 and 4. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So you hear what's going on? The Apostle Paul takes this image of death and burial and resurrection and and kind of melds that with the death of an old spouse and now the marriage to a new spouse. You were married to Mr. Law and now you're married to Mr. Grace. That's how Ray Ortland puts it. We were married to Mr. Law. Mr. Law was a good man in his way. But he did not understand our weakness. Mr. Law came home every evening and asked, So, how was your day? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything that I put on your to-do list? So many demands and expectations from Mr. Law. And as hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy him. 
We forgot the things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave and we failed in other ways. And it was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings. And the worst of it was, he was always right. But his remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. Do better tomorrow. And we didn't because we couldn't. But then, Mr. Law died. And we remarried. This time, to Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, comes home every evening and the house is a mess and the children are being naughty and the dinner is burning on the stove and we've even had other men in the house during the day. But still, he sweeps us into his arms and he says, I love you. I chose you. I died for you. I will never leave you. And our hearts melt because we don't understand such love. We expect him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us, but he treats us so well. And we're so glad to belong to him now and forever. And his love changes us so that we truly long to please him. Being married to Mr. Law never changed us. But being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deep within And our baptism showcases this. Sonship, marriage, and the third picture, mission. Mission. This comes from combining these two verses that we've talked about from Romans and Galatians. They both allude to this in their respective ways. In Galatians, we read the phrase that we are heirs according to the promise. And in Romans, we read that we belong to Christ, our spouse, so that we may bear fruit for God. Fruit and promise. What promise? Well, the promise that was given to Abraham. Remember? In Genesis chapter 12, when God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And then in Genesis 12, 3, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's promise to Abraham was not just that he and the nation would be a recipient of the blessing. Rather, it is that in and through Abraham, all of the families of the earth would be blessed so you see, the baptized life is not just one of possessing the blessing, but being the blessing of God to our world. We talked about it Friday night at Celebrate. 
Principle number eight. Yield myself to God to be used to bring this good news to others, both by my example and my words. And how does this happen? Well, think about Jesus. When Jesus came to our world, he fulfilled three vocational identities. Prophet, priest, and king. And so, in baptism, we identify with Jesus as we live the baptized life of prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, the blessing of prophetic truth-telling. Just as Jesus spoke and lived the truth, and just as he called people to the truth, and I'm thinking of his calling to Pilate, when he said, everyone on the side of truth hears my voice, so too in Christ we call people to the truth. We ask the hard questions like, don't you remember who you are? Don't you remember what God has called you to be? Don't you remember God's vision for us? We ask questions like, what's that for? <laughs> or why are we taking that for granted? Or where is this leading us? Or is this wise? The baptized life is a life of prophecy. A life of confronting the world and speaking the truth of God even when the world doesn't want to hear it. Even when the world wants to make up its own truth. But it also means prophetically speaking the truth of God to ourselves. Because these letters in the New Testament, they were written to Christian communities. We confront ourselves with the truth. Or, as we would say at Celebrate Recovery, every morning I look my enemy in the eye and then I shave him. Prophecy. Oh, but that's not all. Prophet, priest... The blessing of priestly peacemaking. A priest is someone who builds bridges between God and people. And so Jesus, our high priest, offered himself on the cross for us to bring us to God. And now, having sent his Holy Spirit into our lives, whereby we have the intimacy that we can say, Abba, Father... You can see now how as baptized people, we are drawn into the priesthood of Christ. Called upon to mend shattered relationships. So as baptized people, we are in the business of building bridges. As baptized people, we are in the business of seeing situations where there is breakage and damage and disorder and then bringing into those situations the power of God in Christ and the Holy Spirit to rebuild something. And as baptized people, we don't offer the sacrifices in the Old Testament sense, but we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. James says, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Prophet, priest, and then king. The baptized life is a life of royal dignity and holiness, a life that is attractive to the world and one that draws people to God, a royal quality of life that leads others to flourish. We use our royal influence to help others 
flourish. Prophet, priest, and king. These vocations are meant to bless the world, this broken, fallen, chaotic world. And we, we go back to Jesus' own baptism. Jesus was the only one who did not need to be baptized, who was baptized. John the Baptist said, I need to be baptized by you, and you, you come to me to be. And Jesus said, let it be so for now, to fulfill all righteousness. And then he stepped into the Jordan River. And when he stepped into the Jordan River, the Jordan River is chaotic and muddy and murky. And Christ entered those chaotic waters, those muddy waters of human hurt and suffering. And that's what we do in Christian baptism. And so that means that if someone asks the question, where might you expect to find the baptized? The answer is in the neighborhood of chaos. The neighborhood of chaos, neighborhoods where people are most at risk where life is most disordered, disfigured, needy, places of human confusion and suffering. I am baptized, Martin Luther cried. And that means being led to where Jesus is, toward a world of chaos that has forgotten who it is and why it's here and where it's going. And it means not only being in touch with the chaos out there, but also the chaos that exists in my own heart. A heart that needs to be reminded over and over again of who named me. Who named me? Do you remember what the Father's first words to Jesus were as he emerged from the waters of baptism? This is my beloved Son, identity, identity. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You see, uh, Nadia Weber wrote, it's always God's first move to name us. Before we do anything wrong and before we do anything right, God has named us and claimed us as his own. And then, you know, almost immediately, Immediately after God identifies us, other voices try to tell us who we are and to whom we belong. The clothing industry, the weight loss industry, the beauty industry, our parents, our peers, kids at school, they all want to tell us who we are. But only God can tell us who we are. And only God can give us identity. Everything else is temptation. And so Nadia wrote, I love this line, Maybe demons are defined as anything other than God that tries to tell us who we are. In baptism, we are professing our belief in God, and that means trusting that what he says about me is true. I am baptized. I am baptized. Sonship. Marriage, mission, baptism showcases these. I am baptized. Have you been? Have you been? Do you believe that Jesus is from above? Do you believe that he came and lived and taught and died and was buried and is raised and as the resurrected king now, even now, 
reigns over all things seen and unseen in the heavenly realm, and he is working to unite the seen and the unseen, and one day we will spend all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies worshiping a resurrected king. Do you believe this? Well, then avail yourself to this visual gospel reminder. If you have not been baptized, the king wants you to be. In baptism, we are crowned and chosen and embraced and washed and adopted and gifted and reborn and killed and then sent forth and redeemed and we are identified as one of God's own and then assigned our place and our job within the kingdom to be prophet, to be priest, to be king. The king wants us to be baptized.